So then. If you awaken from this illusion, persistence of vision. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Persistence of Vision podcast. Inspiring conversations. We read books so you have to. <laughs> yes, hello, I am Lance Fever Myers. I'm LB Dio. And this is Persistence of Vision. Uh, you know, you should go to our website and check out what we got there. There's comics by world-class artists. There's essays and poetry by really, really great authors. There are links to our, our uh, other podcasts that we've done with a huge plethora of wonderful guests. Um, what else? We got links to our books, right? You have a book yeah, out. Yeah, we have books out. Uh, my book is The Goddamn Fool, available now on Amazon. Your book is Why So Much. Why indeed so much. Go check it out. Uh, yeah, go to uh, Amazon. And if you live in Austin, they're also available at Malvern Books on yes. campus. So there you go. Wonderful bookstore. What else do we got going on? Well, to our eternal pride, we have the great Mike O'Connor. Uh, visiting us here today to discuss uh, a book that he knows very well, A Theory of Justice by John Rawls. Mike O'Connor is so intelligent that he has two PhDs. Is that right? No. No. <laughs> I do have one PhD, though. He has one Only PhD. One? And two master's degrees. What have you been two doing masters. with your life? Uh, just slacking. <laughs> slacking. What is your degree and what is your PhD in? I have a PhD in American Studies. I more recently have uh, a master's in public affairs from okay. the LBJ school. Yeah. Fantastic. Public affairs. My God. Well, we don't we don't have to talk about your affairs. <laughs> well, certainly not when we're being recorded. But, uh, but we would love to talk about you and your love of this book. And, and, uh, and you have also written a book, haven't you, called A Commercial Republic? So we're talking to an author as well as a scholar. That is so. I can't wait. All right. Okay, so, so you know, we ask uh, our guests to sign up and, and to present a book. Uh, why, uh, why A Theory of Justice? Why did that one pick, become your choice? Well, uh, biographically, it had a, a big effect on me. And um, as a historian or I guess former historian at this point um, I see it as as playing an important role in the development of post-war American liberalism mm. um, in my view it's that political liberals have have a tough time making their case that uh, it, it's fairly easy to see to their right um, if you're like a libertarian that resonates with Americans to some extent. If you say, well, I don't think you should take my property. Most Americans say, I agree, you shouldn't take my property. And, right. then, and then there's sort of a, you know, certain cases might push that one way or another. But the basic intuition, I think, holds for most Americans. If, you know, to the, the far left, the socialist can say, um, well, capitalism is so unjust that we should really be committed to equality. And the only way to have equality is to have the state run the economy. And I think that also um, hits certain intuitions, at least for certain people, that that equality is an important goal. Yes. Um, for liberals, or what we more likely today call progressives, like it's sort of like, well, um, I do think that economic inequality is important, but I don't think that we should take over the <laughs> that we should take over the economy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, why not? Well, you know, it's it's too often that liberals are. Um, cast as and I think willingly cast themselves as uh, a halfway house as like well we're just not as 
out there as the libertarians or as out there as the socialists were more mm. sensible. And I actually don't think that that's compelling for anybody. I, mm. I, yeah. I, I also don't think that it's an accurate reflection of their political commitments. And I think a theory of justice did a great job in 1971 of laying a philosophical framework for showing why uh, progressive ideals um, are, are right. They're, it's not just that other people are right, but they go too far. It's that the progressive ideals themselves are the correct ones to have. I remember reading about the uh, the difference between the National Review and the Nation. Which the National Review is a right wing publication, and the Nation is the left wing. And the Nation is different because it is a, a home or a welcoming to uh, more radical uh, leftists as well as to liberals, whereas the National Review tries to just be mainstream conservative. So that's Maybe that's mm-hmm. a reflection of what you're talking about. It's yeah, like, uh, yeah. When did you read? Just out of curiosity, that that, that seems oh, that like was it, it was true a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. 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 The, when the, they were founded, that was the yeah idea. of those particular publications. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and and you know, you mentioned like, okay, when when are you reading these things? And I think, and tell me your opinion about this. Um, and this may be veering away from the book itself, but uh, times have changed right times are a change in right continually i mean for the past three years or so radically different mm-hmm. than they were during the obama administration and do you think that that has uh, an effect on on how people discuss these things uh, i think it should um <laughs> or, or, or i might even flip it around and say uh how people discuss these things should have an effect on the current i mean in particular what i'm what i'm thinking about you know crass but easily accessible way is mm. I mean uh, people right now are voting Democratic are trying to decide uh, between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. um, I think you can make too much of the fact that he's a socialist and she's not uh, I'm not sure their actual policies would be all that amazingly different right. in, in real life yeah. nonetheless he's a socialist and she's not and so I think that um, you can see uh, in Warren's position in particular um, there, there's a there's a little talking point or a little thing she hits on her stump speech most of the time that she first said, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, where she says, if you're an entrepreneur, that's fantastic, but you shipped your product on on state-sponsored roads mm-hmm. and you um, mm, right. used workers that were educated in the public schools and so yeah. on and so on and so on. And, um, but there's no such thing as a self-made. Yeah, I mean, uh, and that, that's straight out of Rawls. Like, I, I, yeah. like so much so that I, mm-hmm. I, I literally believe that she intentionally is summarizing Rawls. I mean, I don't know that. that could, mm-hmm. It could be wrong, but it's like, uh, that that's exactly his, his argument. Well, tell us the tell us this argument. What okay. is the thesis of this book? Let's do that. Uh, the thesis of this book, uh, to boil it down really, uh, I don't know how to end that sentence, to boil it down <laughs> a great deal, uh, <laughs> is social and economic inequality should be arranged to the benefit of the least advantaged. That that's where he summarizes it. It's 580 some pages. Um, but I think it's more important to sort of ask about what that means or why. So it's you guys podcast. You can stop me whenever, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to let us have it. <laughs> okay. So what Rawls says is he, he's operating in this, uh, philosophical tradition. He's a philosopher. And, um, he says, I want to examine the notion of what a truly just society would be. And he's got this, you know, centuries of, of philosophical discourse before him where people have offered different arguments and, and so on. Uh, and he wants to sort of update that and a, a little bit and, and tweak it. So um, 
the question, of course, is when I, when I tell you, I think this society is just the only, there's no real way to check the answer like it is if I say what's the temperature, mm. except when I tell you that, you go, huh, that does sound just, right? Right. And that's, right. that's not a very good it's very test. very subjective feeling. Yeah, it's yeah. too subjective. So he, he wants to try to take, um, you know, if you're familiar with the, the sort of social contract idea from philosophers like Hobbes and, and Locke and, and tweak it a little bit. So it's, uh, it's not just about your intuitions, but it's actually something you could argue about with somebody else. And so what he says is, let's imagine that we put a bunch of people in a room, right? It could be a room just like this. It could be people just like us, let's say, to make it easy. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and we give them the job of designing an ideal society, um, an ideally just society, that is. And... Um, then, in order to sort of bring his little tweak in that changes the whole thing, he says, but there's one catch, and that's that none of these people know anything about themselves. So this is the hypothetical. It's not realistic to not right. know anything about yourself. Yeah. But by some, you can imagine technology or a, or a magic spell or whatever you want. But they don't. They literally don't know. Like, they can't look at their own hands and say, oh, I must be such and such a race, you know. He had a name, like, Point of Origin or something like that. Is that the name of it? Uh, the Veil of Ignorance. Veil of Ignorance. Uh, that, yeah. Well, I thought that was... The Original Position. Original Position. The whole thing it. is right. called the Original yes. Position. Yes. The specific device is right. called the Veil of Ignorance. Um, and so the idea is that, that Rawls says is that... Your job, right, if you're in the original position, you, is not specifically to design the ideal society, even though I said that a minute ago. That was a <laughs> misstatement. Your job is to design the society that's best for you, hmm. right? But you don't know anything about yourself. Right. And so what he says is, if everyone's trying to design a society that's best for themselves, but no one uh, knows anything about themselves, they will inevitably designed a society that's the most just because that's basically the best you can do you can't rig the game in your favor because you don't sure. know who you are so i mean easy sort of low-hanging fruit obvious example if you know if for some reason some person said i think all the white people should be at the top of the pyramid in this society first of all no one would say that because they don't know if they're white <laughs> but everybody else would say well i don't know if i'm white so that's a stupid bargain i'm not going to take that they would vote it down Right. Yeah. Um, so, so the really obvious things that are unjust, you know, um, racism and sexism and so on, would 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 not be included in a, in a perfectly just society, which of course does correspond with our um, with our intuitions. Right. So what? So this is really the divider chooser method of apportionment, right? This is the idea that if you like, well, or at least that's an attempt to to do the same thing, where if you are going to uh, cut a piece of cake for someone yeah. and for yourself <laughs> right? and you say the person who cuts is not the person who chooses which piece he gets. Mm. Well, that means that the person who cuts has to try to cut them as equally as possible because right. if he cuts one smaller than the other, the other person is going to choose the bigger piece. That's exactly, yeah. And, and the idea is that, that Rawls has is that we are not like like the engine that drives this process is not altruism. It's not your sense of justice, which might be different from one society to the next. It's your selfishness, self-interest, and yeah, your self-interest. And we like to believe, and this is of course one of the criticisms of the book that 
self-interest might also be culturally grounded and, and might not look the same everywhere and so on. But we like to believe that that's a straight up calculation, that if someone does something that's not actually to the benefit of their self-interest, we just call that irrational. <laughs> Let's do right? it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so these are rational people yeah. pursuing their rational ends, right? Yes. Um, and so, you know, the sort of paradigmatic case in this book is, is economic inequality, right? I mean racial justice and so on, it just kind of gets checked off really fast because it's pretty obvious that you're going to have that in the society. Um, and so Rawls says, again, um, these people are interested in their uh, their own self, their own self-interest <laughs> to be circular, um, their own agenda, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and so what you have to ask them or, or what they would be asked is you know what kinds of property would you be allowed to have in this just society how would you be able to to earn money how would you be able to to divide up the um resources the resources right, yeah, yeah. The, the production the, yes etc of, sure. of this society and um what he says and I, I think the easiest way to understand it is the idea that given these constraints, we would divide them equally is such an obvious idea, like the cake, right? Like mm -hmm. you just mentioned, um, that it would probably be the first thing they would think of, that's right? Like a mathematical yeah, idea. that everyone gets the same. And that's what socialism is, right? Is, is that equality is the highest political virtue and we need to sort of always have an eye on that and always have committed to that. Nonetheless, uh, Rawls says they would reject that. And the reason why is because if everyone's trying to get the most for themselves, it is not necessarily true, although it might seem like it is true at first, that the best, the, the, the way to get the most for yourself is to make sure that everyone else has exactly the same as you. It's to right? cut the cake exactly. Right. Because, half. and then here's where the cake metaphor breaks down, yeah. right? Uh, it's because of economic growth, right? If it were possible, right? If you imagine there's scenario A and scenario B. Scenario A, there's three of us at this table, and we all have exactly the same. Scenario B, we say, let's allow LB to start a company, and if he makes a bunch of money, he can hire us both, and, uh, and then we're all better off than we were without the company, mm -hmm. and, and Rawls is at such a high level, he doesn't really care. We, we wouldn't be passing rules about whether LB can start a company. We would be passing rules about whether companies can exist, whether mm -hmm. private property yes, would sure. exist, you know, like really high-level stuff. Yeah. Um, and so if it were possible that LB could start his company, we could work for him, and make more money, then in fact we would all be better off right. than if we all split the equal right. uh, pie. Yeah, and so, and then this is when I used to teach this book. Like, I, this is where I always struggled with my students because I'd be like, "Would you take this or that?" You know, scenario A, or scenario B, and there were a lot of people. Usually not a majority, but but a sizable minority who would say, "I'm not taking B because just fuck that guy." You know, <laughs> like, I just don't. I just don't want him to have more than me. And I'm uh -huh. like, "Yeah, but that's not." That could be you for one thing. It could be you for one thing, right? But also, it's not rational. It's not pursuing your rational self interest, right? right? Your sure. only goal is to get more than you have. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, and again, this is a place where people have criticized Rawls. They've said basically he he defines everything away. Anything that choice that someone else might say, he says, well, that's just not rational, so it doesn't count. Oh, I see. Sure. I don't think that's a fair criticism, but it's, it's frequently made. Um, and so... Um, well, it's not a fair criticism, right? Because he's, he's giving us a framework not to find an obvious answer, but to reason about this 
and determine what the best system is. Exactly. Exactly. And so the, the, then the question is in real life is how like we won't always know. I mean, LB can start a company and then have a really terrible idea and lose a bunch of money and we're, we're out on the street, in which case we would have been better off at scenario A, right? Um, so we don't really always know that's going to happen or, or how we don't always have a mechanism by which individual people's actions will distribute things fairly or, or alternatively he could do really well and just be a, a robber baron and, and, and exploit us as workers. And then we still also would have been better off if everything was split equally, even if the pie itself was still smaller, all those things can happen. So what do we do to make sure that, um, social and economic inequalities like in other words anytime there is an inequality it's got to work for the benefit of the person on the bottom that's the thesis i mentioned earlier right right yes uh so we allow the inequality of lb being our boss and the owner of the company with us just being workers because we as workers are better off well what if that doesn't always happen well the way that we make sure that it happens is we tax the shit out of lb and we give the money to the people who did not win mm -hmm. right so the this is you know what i was leading up to all the way from the beginning this is the sort of conventional progressive liberal position right that like in order to bring about social justice not necessarily equality but justice um you need to have a fairly robust state that is taking money from the winners and giving it to the losers i mean it's really i mean that's you know an overstatement and not very elegant but that's basically what he says You're right yeah and the reason why he says that is because the only reason why people are allowed to own those companies is because that production can work to the benefit of the least advantage if it didn't work to the least advantage in other words if we allowed the inequality but didn't have the redistributive mechanism right well then we never would have chosen that in the we first place. We never would question. have chosen that. And so it's yeah. unjust, right? That's exactly the point, right? So it's unjust. Like, so all of this is really, the original position is never going to happen. So <laughs> sure. it's yeah. really just a device for us to Thought figure experience. out. Thought experience. Yeah. yeah, right. It's a device for us to figure out what our intuitions actually are. And so what he's saying is your intuitions actually are, inequality should not be allowed to exist unless they work to the benefit of everyone. Hmm. Right. So... Rawls winds up saying that he's agnostic on the question of capitalism versus socialism. He does say correct? that, which always surprises me a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, he does. He does. Uh, even though I think that his, I mean, he, he does say, he does say that equality is not the political goal, that, that, that um, justice is not synonymous with equality. Mm -hmm. um, Fairness is. Right. 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 He, uh, he's talking about fairness. Right. I mean, he actually calls justice as fairness. That's how he defines it. As opposed to, I realize this many, many years later, as opposed to justice as some particular embodiment of what you already thought before you started considering the question. Like, yes. if you're a Marxist, justice is, you know, the workers ruling the state. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like that, yeah. That, well, that's that's one <laughs> of the challenges to the to the whole concept, right, is that he's saying, okay, we can, we can have a basis for determining what is a just society provided that we accept certain ideas about what justice means and someone else in that original situation might say wait a second i i object to the whole thesis here because i don't think that fairness or justice means equal distribution or can be distributed right, right. that's exactly right yeah 
Uh, yeah, it is interesting, the, the, the use of the word justice or fairness, because to me they seem fairly synonymous. Um, that's his when, point, though. That's his point. That's his point. That's oh, synonymous. yeah. Whereas um, if, if I walked into the, not into the original position, but if I walked into, say, the book, mm-hmm. outside of the real world as a philosopher, and I said justice is always when people are the most free. Justice is always when people are the oh, most I equal sure. or something like that. Yeah. And then he's saying you stack the deck. Yeah. And, and you pretty much predicted what answer you're going to get. Right. And so he's, by saying justice is fairness, he's using a very neutral word that, that doesn't, in some ways, mean anything once you've already said justice. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, a, cl- a, clear, a clear challenge to this, obviously, whether it makes any sense or not, would be to some, someone, a scenario where, uh, let's say I'm the one who starts the company, but what if I were one of the worst off to begin with? Mm-hmm. And I somehow managed to acquire a company, and then you're taxing me the same way that you were taxing me to redistribute my money that I that right. I've managed to earn uh, the same way as if I had been one of the wealthy people in the original distribution of things, right? Right. But what what Rawls would say is he's concerned about he said calls these the basic institutions of society mm. like he's not he's not coming up with a theory that's going to judge particular cases so, right 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 so the fact is like if 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 you were one of the least off worst off and then you got to be one of the better off he would still make the same argument like you you couldn't you know you might not have been able to go from the bottom to the top if you were born in you know, the favelas of Rio instead of in the U.S. Or, you know, like there's so many things that other people... Is that the right yes. word, by the way? Favela? Yeah, I, I shouldn't have said words. I don't really know very well. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> the slums of Rio are yeah, notoriously... Slums, right. right. Um, not only impoverished, but violent. <laughs> and, uh, and and so he, he's going to argue that even if, even if you were you know, worse off than someone else who started better off, you've still got to that place. And you got to that place with the help of yes. the rest of society. Well, all I'm saying is that, yeah, he may be right about that. Mm-hmm. He may be absolutely correct, but it nevertheless, as a person in the original position, uh, I might disagree and have a different oh, idea of what fairness means. Right. I might say, no, that's not fair. You can't, you can't do that. That's not fair. Right. <laughs> but doesn't it, I keep getting tripped up on this idea that, that this book centers around justice. Because to me, it seemed more in line with just figuring out how to structure a system that raises quality of life in the uh-huh. best way. Right. Um, but he's saying that that's the just thing to do. Okay. Fair he, enough. No, he, but he's, like, he's, saying, he's saying, I think more specifically, that people wouldn't shut down the possibility of making the pie bigger just because they won't have as much of the pie. So... Mm-hmm. So, I mean, basically he's saying, and Re- I think... Sort I, of reevaluating the, th- the thought behind what is justice or what right, is fair. Right, right. He's saying, in other words, if you have five units of whatever, you know, whatever, five units, and tomorrow you could have six, but you also at that point went from having, you know, 1% of society's goods to a half a percent, he's saying you would always rather have six than five. Um you know, and you can. It was a, a social, like a, some experiment, and I can't. I'm not going to get it right, so sorry. But it's <laughs> something about how uh, there was a, a um, experiment where they had uh, the test subject was uh, given the the opportunity to give their partner a hundred dollars. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? And and then about and they as get well like as you 25. do. I think. Yeah. yeah. 
um, or <laughs> or neither gets anything, and to to and it's something like that. I mean, yeah, the people dynamic, would rather get nothing and have their the other person get nothing, right? Than give the other person a hundred and receive five, right? Yes, they would actually it. rather. I mean, just I don't know that, that was the entire thing. I don't know that that was the result. Yeah, that but, w- no, it was. Yeah, okay. So it's a hundred bucks. And so I, I would rather have nothing and have you not have nothing than have you have a hundred dollars and right. we have five dollars. Yeah, or a dollar or whatever. Which would be exactly the opposite of Rawls's. <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's right. At this point, but yeah. but again, then he would you know. But this so, is a Some would say he defined but it that's away. Irrational that's thinking irrational, really so is. That's that's not what we would bring to the original position yeah. you know and again you could say well if everybody does it all the time and that's a well-established principle of, of human thinking then maybe you can't just define it away like that well but there probably <laughs> is a threshold of and, and it might not be quite as black and white as that because you know in the real world you would examine all possibilities and say okay let's let's make a deal you're giving him a hundred you're giving me five if i'm the one who gets to say whether this happens or not i'd rather it be 60 40 or you know what i mean there may be that, a, thre- no, that's exactly a, a threshold yeah. and you do that through the mechanism of the state because right. because it's very hard not to do this but we're doing it like you always wind up talking about Rawls. you get into this idea that there's like two people and they're bargaining and like, like we're <laughs> yeah. just setting up the society because you're already if, if you say 60 40 you're implying that i know i have 60 uh-huh. you know like we don't know any of that we're just like if some hypothetical person later on down the road happens to have 60 like what how much would i really care about that yeah in that visceral way that you're sort of bringing it up you know? yeah sure probably not very much but you would say like if, if it strikes you as unfair that this would happen then you say well we put that in the state we put that in the mechanism of the state to say if people gain that much money or if they gain money that way or yeah. if whatever it is we think they have to give some back and redistribute it to right to other people right so the uh the book a Commercial Republic is your uh, your book that you came up with. It is. Is this is it uh, related to a theory of justice or is it ish? There's there's uh, there's about ten pages on a theory of justice in there. I, I tried to um, like I said I was I was an intellectual and political historian for a while, and so what it is is a uh, the book is a um, it's a consideration of different theories of how the United States has intervened in the economy. So it's, it's what I would maybe now call economic development after having gone to policy school um, throughout history. So it's designed to sort of argue against the libertarian notion that the government didn't do anything in the economy until, until the new deal. I think that's just totally false. Mm. Um, And, uh, and so I position Rawls later in the book, much in the same way that I did here as a guy who, um, clearly articulated some of the principles of post-war liberalism better than I think most actual post-war liberals actually did. Um, traditionally, if you took Rawls in a philosophy class or something, he's seen as the guy who um, uh, put put political philosophy back on the map in the United States yes. after people sort of forgotten about it because utilitarianism had become so important. I think that's true. But it's not what interests me as much. You know? right. So it sounds like you're a fan. I'm a fan. And, and, I am a it, fan, yeah. Do you, do you feel like if our listeners out there, all the millions and millions of voters who are listening to this podcast were to read Rawls, uh-huh. uh, we'd be a better off society? Oh, without a doubt. Okay. Yeah, without well, it's a doubt. interesting that uh, we have a president who is a very fervent admirer of Rawls and Bill Clinton. Oh, okay. Who Bill Clinton had, had a president? Had. You we had. Me. I was we like, had, what are yes. you talking about? And Bill Clinton was uh, was uh, said that he was the greatest uh, 
political philosopher of the 20th century and had him to dinner at the White House repeatedly. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Hmm. When did you first discover this book in Rawls? I uh, was assigned this book in college, which would have been, I don't know, 1988 or something like that. Um, it was a seminar. I was a philosophy major, and they, you know, all the juniors had to do a seminar on one book. And so I remember being in this room, and there were two seminars, and one was on Rawls, and one was on free will, and all the philosophy majors were in this room. And I had never heard of the book. Um, the, the professor teaching it sort of explained what it was about, and I was like, that sounds more interesting to me than the one on free will, which hmm. was the other one. Everyone else seemed to feel the same way because everyone was going to the other side of the room to sort of choose, and so they had to have like a lottery or Exercising something. Exercising their free will. Exactly, that's true. I never really thought about that. Um, <laughs> but also trying to, to get into the society that would come after they were gone, right? The, the class hadn't started yet, so. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I just got lucky. I got in the lottery, you know, and, and got to take the class. And so I really, um, you know, I think we would read like... I don't know, like 12 pages for each class or something. It was a very, very like detailed examination of this particular book. And uh, I do remember when I first read it, I didn't really like it. Oh, um, really? It is yeah. a bit of a tough read. It's a tough read, and but I also thought in general that his... Um, I thought like he was trying to ground it in something that he didn't really offer that I'm like, well, why, you know, who cares what these people would choose and why is, why does that make it right? And so on. And, uh, you know, I later came around, uh, to see that like, he's not offering that. It's like, it doesn't, he's not Kant, you know, he's not trying to say that this is, this is, um, rooted or grounded in some nature of, of politics. He's just saying, don't you agree that that's what they choose? You know, mm -hmm. and if not, tell me why not, you know? Yeah. And, and, and uh, I think w once I got over that, I became a much bigger fan, but mm. I've actually read the book three times. Um, I had to, I went back to grad school and read it again. And then I read it again for the book. So it's, um, it, it becomes a little bit more illuminating each time. Um, mostly because I, slowly like I, I I will find actual quotes of things that I sort of knew that Rawls thought but had never pinned down because like other people had told me or because I read it somewhere and then I would finally oh it really is in the book which is always a a mild relief because sometimes I'm afraid I just go off and think <laughs> things are true and they're not. <laughs> I have, have you, I, I'm, I'm quite sure you've, you've uh, uh, become much more acquainted with the book now that you teach it, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, it sure. usually tends to be the case. Yeah, 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 yeah. And where do you teach? I don't teach anymore. Oh, okay. But okay, I gotcha. did, uh, I taught at uh, New York Institute of Technology. I taught at Penn State Erie. I mm -hmm. taught at um, Georgia State in Atlanta for a while. And then, then I could not get on the tenure track ever and it made me very cranky so I decided <laughs> to come back to Austin and, and get my public policy degree fantastic very nice so the we have to do our lightning round but before okay. I want to very quickly ask you about anarchy state and utopia oh, by okay. Nozick yeah. uh, that is that book was written as a kind of uh, attempt to refute or at least address refute I think this particular book <laughs> it's fair. yeah yeah uh, and it was and it's credited with a lot of what being fairly important in the libertarian yes, movement, what, what are your thoughts about that book? I have not read it. I am, I am, I was nodding vigorously, and then I remembered that people can't see me do that. So yes, <laughs> yes, in fact, that is true. Everything you said is true. Um, you know, um, I guess for the benefit of, of uh, your listeners and time, I will not now summarize that book. So that's not going to be fair to Nozick, but uh, 
I mean, it's it's a pretty clever book. It's it's very smart. It, it he does a great job of you know where Rawls has this one big initial position and then he and then he crams you know hundred things in it over five hundred pages. Uh, Anarchy State and Utopia is I would think maybe two hundred that it's it's. I wouldn't say breezy, but it's really easy to read. <laughs> He's really good at thinking of of different examples that illustrate uh, uh, the point. I mean, the one I remember, for example, is he's, he's like, um, imagine there's a certain, there's an island. There's like a desert island where people have crashed and there's a certain number of men, a certain number of women, and they all have to, they're, they're stuck on this island. And so uh, they're pairing off, right? And um, if, uh, you know, he says that, and, and let's just assume that the men are all, um, it's completely consensual among every resident of this island, which person is most desirable, which is second most desirable, third. So if the men are A, B, C, D, E, and the women are one, two, three, four, five, um, you're going to say, well, obviously A is going to pair with one and B is going to pair with two and so on. So if you're D, you really want one. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, at what at what point do you get to say that an injustice was done, right? <laughs> Who did the injustice if you can't get that thing that you want and then you have to settle for the fourth choice instead of your first choice? Um, you know, and it's like, it's hard to give a good response to that because, you know, we've, we've all been D or whoever I was talking about, you know, <laughs> and it feels really unfair that you can't get things that you want, but these are free people making free choices mm-hmm. as, as a libertarian would characterize the economy, right? Free people making free yes. choices. Um, and, and so, I mean, and he has like, he's like a hundred of those examples and they're all really kind of Will Chamberlain. The Will Chamberlain is the most famous one, um, which I don't think we want to get into now or do we? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> look it up, folks. Yeah, look it look up. It up but Will exactly. Chamberlain makes a major place and takes a major place in political philosophy in the United States. He does. He does. He does. Um, and and I think the last thing I, I actually he works with the other thing too. <laughs> yeah, twenty thousand. That's true. That's true. Um, and then just the the thing that I would I would point out though uh, that that Rawls might respond to that. Nozick was always mad that Rawls never rigorously or systematically responded to Nozick's book because they were they were both on the on the philosophy department at Harvard at the same time so yeah. I always think that's really weird that they would walk by each other like getting lunch or something and he's like hey you gotta respond to my book well screw you Nozick you know like I don't I don't <laughs> know what you see that, that was. book I wrote yes I, <laughs> I wrote a book too right? so um and what, what Rawls says that I, I think is really interesting is that um our notion of dessert um, is rooted in, in in a certain intuition that we don't realize we don't apply consistently. So, in other words, we would all pretty much say, I hope we would, you know, that something you can't control, like the color of your skin or your gender or whatever, shouldn't play a major role in shouldn't play any role, maybe in in um, how much stuff you have, basically, right? Yes. Um, shouldn't impede your ability to get work, shouldn't impede your ability to be paid the same as someone else and so on. Um, but if the reason for that is that this is something you cannot control, then he's like, most of the things that we do want to distribute property on the basis of are also things you cannot control. Right. And this is, and this is where I think intuitions break down. Like Rawls wants to say, he actually does say, um, you know, your ability to work hard, 
your willingness to work hard has a lot to do with the family you grew up in. So yes. even if one person worked really hard and made a bunch of money, like the fact that they maybe just stipulate did work way harder than the person who sat on their ass all the time and smoked weed. Like he's like, I don't care. Right. Because that second person might've worked just as hard if they had a different family upbringing. Well, now you're bringing in, you are talking about free will and the idea of, of do we, you know, do you actually have the choice to make? To He's be, making an to, assertion to about free right. will, saying so, yeah. we don't. We don't have. Yeah. We 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 are born with and without capacities. Without the capacity to work that hard or to. Uh, I think he's more saying that disagree? that social uh, structures have a, a serious role to play. Sure. In even our personality traits, but even things like that 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 aren't social, like how good looking you are, is something right. that you are born with that is not socialized it's not right. anything it's just chance and uh and there it is and it has a huge impact in your life outcome right although i think that how good looking you are at least theoretically most people would say that's sort of like race that shouldn't play a role whereas i think most intuitions are how hard you're willing to work yeah should or how play smart you are yeah, or how smart you are should you play are. a role and and ross is like honestly that's every bit as arbitrary as anything else mm-hmm. and so he mm-hmm has a fairly you know again at the very beginning when I said like liberalism looks like this halfway house between the rigorous intellectual commitments of libertarianism and of socialism like I don't think that's true I think he's saying that uh, in fact socialization goes so deep that there's almost no limit to what we should correct for with the social mechanisms of the state the redistributive mechanisms of the state all right what is that sound in the distance? Is that thunder? That's, that's thunder. Is that lightning? It's coming. Here we L- go. The lightning round is here. Mike, are you ready? Okay, I'm, I'm as ready as I'm going to be. Okay, here we go. Tell us about the first time you fell in love with a book. Oh, boy. Um, this might be wrong, but the first one I can remember is Watership Down. Okay, uh, sure. When I, when I was a kid, my parents took me... Oh, yeah, you probably be this. Yeah, my parents took me to the movie... Um, uh, not the Netflix one. They just obviously that was really good, but this was the earlier one from the seventies. Yeah, um, and yeah, I John Hurt did not know that there was a book or anything, but they had it around the house because I guess a lot of parents in the seventies did, right? <laughs> and, uh, so I took it home and I read it, and um, then I read it probably three times total, and it's a pretty fat book for a kid. Um, but yeah, really, it, it made a huge impression on me. I always tried to figure out what exactly it was trying to say, and I never <laughs> really did, which is, I guess, a good way to make people read your book again. Yes. Right. Um, but I felt really keenly that it was trying to say something. And that um, was enough. And that was enough. To, I think to, that's right. I think that's right. loving it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, good Excellent. answer. Uh, has a book ever changed your mind about anything? Oh, without a doubt. Well, I mentioned earlier that a theory of justice actually... Um, sure. Well, I guess technically it didn't change. I changed my mind about it. It might be more accurate. But ah. uh, later I, I encountered a philosopher by the name of Richard Rorty. Um, and, um, philosophy is the mirror of nature. Philosophy is the mirror of nature. That's right. And um, not to make too fine a point on it, but uh, I, I, I up to that point would have said I was some sort of a of a Platonist or, or a realist and that I believe very much in the objective, independent nature of reality. And after I read Rorty, I sort of didn't. Hmm. Um, wow. And, and so that was, uh, that was a pretty big deal. Well, uh, this is sort of a, a larger version of that, that question. Has the book ever changed your life? Yes, because, and I was saving that, because it changed my life 
whether or not you adopt a different philosophical position, I think you can argue is or is not a change in your life. But what I can tell you is that when I read Rorty and uh, he basically argued that most of philosophy is a quest to find this uh, nature of things that it doesn't really exist and that we're never going to find, I dropped out of the philosophy program. So, <laughs> wow. So, okay. Uh, and, and I went into American studies and um, wrote him a letter and told him I was doing that and uh, sent him my thesis that I wrote on him because I still had to get my master's in philosophy and I had to write a thesis to have something to show for that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wrote me back and said that he um, looked forward to reading my thesis, which I doubt he ever did. <laughs> and, but, and, but this is the part I remember and I've kept that letter ever since and it's probably 20 years old now. Or, yeah. And it said, I sometimes wish I'd gone into American studies myself. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, uh, has a book ever made you cry? I'm sure. Probably a lot, but I'm having a hard time thinking of an example right now. Like, it's pretty easy to make me cry, to be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 we're planning on it, my friend. We are planning on it. <laughs> You're running out of time. You're running out of time. You better get to it soon. <laughs> Okay. Uh, name a book you've read more than I think you've already done this. Name a book you've read more than once. Yeah, yeah a different book you've read. Uh, yeah, let's yeah, say yeah, Worship God and Theory of Justice. Um, book I've read more than once. I used to uh, when I was a kid. I was well, I still am a big Star Trek fan. Okay, and so I used to get all these Star Trek books from the library. Um, they were they were numbered where they literally just wrote up the like they novelized. Every episode. Every episode, which now I think that was so stupid. Why didn't I read those? But uh, I couldn't put them down, and I just go to the library, and I would check them out again, and I'd check them out again, check wow. them out again. On my own bookshelf at home, I had maybe it was maybe two feet by three feet or something. Well, you're telling me there's a novel of every Star Trek episode? Yeah, they're yes. written by a guy named James Blish. Wow. And they're just called Star Trek 1, Star Trek 2, Star Trek 3, and each has, if I recall, three <laughs> episodes in it maybe. Mm -hmm. Wait, how – each episode was 30 minutes? An hour. Wait, and we're talking about the original Star Trek. Yeah. 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 Really? They were an hour? Yeah. Okay. Captain Kirk, Platonist yeah. or Aristotelian? Platonist. McCoy's okay. definitely a Platonist. <laughs> That's tough, though. That is really tough. What about Spock? You know... No, Spock's all mystical. Like that's the weird thing about. It. That's why he's an interesting character because he's so logical, which is seems very Platonist to me. Whereas Aristotle's more likely to sort of to take the mm -hmm. measure Empirical. of all the different variables. And I'm actually going back to thinking maybe Kirk is Aristotelian, but Spock also has that <laughs> weird uh, mystical side to him, which which might be more like Pythagorean or something. If we uh -huh. have to be ancient Greeks, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and he's well, a vegetarian. Of we have to. I think he's a Pythagorean. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with that. I like that. I'm yeah. still over here just reeling at the idea of an, a novel for every episode. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's for a novel for every every three three, episodes, yeah. I believe. I see, right? I see. And then after that, now maybe what you're thinking of again, being the animator, uh, they had cartoon Star Trek right in yes. the 70s yes. for one season, if I recall. Uh, and they also that. put out novelizations of those. <laughs> Is that right? And those were called Star Trek Log 1, Star Trek Log okay. 2, instead of yeah. just Star Trek 1, Star Trek 2. Uh, those might have been by Blish. I don't... I want to say it's by Alan Dean Foster. I don't know. But um, so you can look at those two. Interesting. But you can also watch the Star Trek uh, animated series on Netflix right now, if I'm not mistaken. You read that, that one? Yeah. From the 70s? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, it's, I realize now, because I was a kid when I watched it, and uh, yeah. the animation's not very good. No. Yeah. <laughs> I do remember it not being the, very yeah, good. Yeah. There's, there's, <laughs> what I read somewhere online, because like, I went back and watched them like, when they got on Netflix. I hadn't seen them in 25 years, and, mm. and uh, 
what I read someone online said, you know, when their chins don't go down <laughs> when they speak, their mouths just open. And I was like, well, that's that's impossible. How could I not have been bothered by that? But I'm really <laughs> bothered by it now <laughs> when I see that. <laughs> Love it. Okay, here comes the uh, million-dollar question, okay. the big one. Okay. Do you have any poetry committed to memory? Almost, but no. Technically, no. Okay. no. Okay. Yeah. That's that's fine. That's yeah. fine. You're uh, in good company. There's I, a lot of guests who have not. I, I do have a favorite poem. Uh-huh. What's that? Uh, it is by Walt Whitman, and it is called To a Certain Cantatrice. Uh-huh. And it's very short, and I could almost memorize it, but I haven't. Uh, gotcha. um, and it does actually. That's an answer to your other question. Every time I read it, it makes me cry. Oh. I was um, I was going to read it at the Dionysian once, but I thought I couldn't get through it without crying, and that might be moving. You don't want to cry in front would, of Graham Reynolds. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't be. <laughs> it, it might be. It, it might be moving, but it also wouldn't be very uh, a good presentation of things. So I I, yeah. I backed down on it. Read some other Whitman. Okay. Fantastic. Mike O'Connor, ladies and gentlemen, his book is A Commercial Republic, America's Enduring Debate Over Democratic Capitalism. We've just been discussing that. We've been discussing Watership Down, Star Trek, and, and of course, especially A Theory of Justice by Rawls. So all of these books should be of interest to you, and you should read them all. And if you don't, you'll be very, very sorry. It's been delightful. Thank you, Mike. Thanks Thank for you, me. Mike. What a pleasure. Okay, well, Persistence of Vision uh, Publishing, POV-Publishing.com. I think we didn't even give the uh, address earlier, but it is POV-Publishing.com. There you can read comics, essays, poetry. You can see links to all our podcasts and links to go pick up my book, Why So Much by Lance Myers, LB's book, The Goddamn Fool. Go do it. And, and we'll review s- our books on Amazon. Yes, Dan do that. Do that. Please do. Buy them, review them, and uh, buy an extra copy for a friend. Yeah, your friends need this, these books. That's right. And they need a commercial republic. Okay. Thank you. Thanks.